This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Um, thank you for listening today. I have a mega episode for you. <laughs> uh, this ended up being quite long, um, and it is exploring a topic that we haven't really talked much about before, and that is the shared death experience. And just to briefly say what that is, it's when, well, uh, an individual is not uh, in a life-threatening situation. Um, you know, they could just be anywhere, really. Um, but uh, someone they love or someone they're close to um, dies, and they um, experience some uh, almost identical NDE-like kind of phenomena associated with the death of someone that they're close to. And this is something that, you know, is kind of gets talked about quite a bit. And, you know, um, like people's anecdotes that they bring up, like, oh, when my grandmother died, this weird thing happened. Like, you know, it, it's something that you definitely hear about. And and so I wanted to do kind of a a comprehensive episode to really dive into this topic. And so I'm going to be reading three shared death experiences all of these are coming from nderf.org, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, and I will post all the links in the description of the uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, this ended up just being a... I had a lot to say. There were, there were lots of uh, um, things to, to talk about and examine and, and um, things to tie into the imagery that that comes out of these beautiful kind of shared death experience. And so, um, you know, I, I, I hope you can <laughs> listen to the whole thing. If you got to break it up into chunks, um, that's okay. So um, we're going to start with uh, a shared death experience by a woman named Frances. Um, this occurred in 1982, and she just went to sleep one night and had a dream. And in the dream, um, it kind of merged into this shared death experience with her grandmother. So um, the episode's long enough. I will just dive right in. Um, this is Francis's shared death experience. I was close, but not unusually so, to my mother's parents. My grandfather died in approximately 1969, when I was 15. There was nothing extraordinary. In approximately 1982, I was married and the mother of two young children. I was asleep and had an incredibly vivid dream in which I was surrounded by water and unable to breathe. The water was a kind of living water. I don't know how else to describe it, other than maybe amniotic fluid. I could see shadows outside the water and knew they were people I loved, but we weren't really connected physically. I fought and fought not to breathe the water. 
I was rasping heavily in my breathing. Nearing exhaustion, I decided to breathe the water. The next experience in my dream was sudden and immediate. A big black paw hit my forehead, followed immediately by what I can only describe as peace beyond all understanding. After the long and excruciating battle against breathing the water, these steps were quicker. Feeling peace beyond all understanding, I was sort of floating above a bed, a hospital bed. Medical staff surrounded the bed. I can still identify the staff today. There was a young man with somewhat dark complexion and dark wavy hair with a stethoscope around his neck and a lovely young woman with beautiful auburn wavy hair. I don't know these people in my real life. They said to me, the body below me, that they were sorry they could not save me. I think slash talked to them, feeling so peaceful that it was okay. Next, a wonderful green, yellow, white light drew me to it, still floating in the hospital room. I couldn't resist the light and entered into it. There was an immense and more than beautiful lawn or meadow and a tree with a man gardening under it. I moved toward the man, who was somewhat ephemeral, and it was my grandfather, my grandmother's deceased husband. He began to welcome me. Then the phone in the bedroom rang and rang. My husband awoke, answered the phone, and called me to it. I was very groggy from the dream, and my voice was still froggy from all the rasping, as I had tried not to breathe the water. It was my dad on the phone, telling me my grandmother had passed away, approximately a two-hour drive from my home. That is the end of my experience. I believe I experienced her death and her first experiences in heaven following her death. Please bear in mind that my grandmother died from heart failure and her lungs filled with fluid. That is how she died. Okay, so that was Francis's shared death experience. I think to start out with, as we move forward, uh, it would be useful to kind of lay out some goals or some some guiding kind of ideas to to I won't guide us through this <laughs> this discussion. Um, because uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of things to talk about and you know usually when I do one of these I I feel good about it if I'm able to say everything that I wanted to say sometimes I do sometimes I don't um, but I think having a kind of framework in, in terms of goals to accomplish with talking about this I think that will be useful to make sure that um, I stay on track and that it makes sense <laughs> to everybody um, so I guess the first goal, kind of in line with the whole title and idea of this episode, is to explore what shared death experiences are and what their implications are and, and what they mean, how they manifest, and what kind of the usual, I don't know, process with the shared death experiences and what are some differences that people can see. 
So I guess the first goal would be to to just get a general sense of the shared death experience and and how it differs from near-death experiences and, and what it is in its own right. And then the second goal would be something that I usually try to do with most of these episodes, and that is to try to look at the images and symbols that emerge out of these different near-death experiences and, well, usually it's near-death experiences. In this case, it's shared-death experiences. So to to look at these different images and symbols and not only compare them with one another, but also to compare them with historical and mythological material to try to ground these extremely subjective, personal, individualized experiences into into something that's a part of the human experience to make to give it roots into into our our own shared humanity and to see what we can learn from that it's uh, i think with any of these you know any experience that you have that is could be uh, considered you know mystical or spiritual or anything that there's always that danger of thinking that your experience is the the experience you know <laughs> that it's that you you're the one who saw god and you're the one who who saw whatever religious figures and whatever um particular configuration but by examining the different imagery and and symbols that emerge out of these and comparing them and and rooting them in our own you know human, religious, and spiritual uh, uh, kind of traditions from around the world that we can kind of ground them and, and see that, oh, well, these people have experienced these these kinds of things in, in many different ways, and uh, but there's still commonalities that we can, can point to and learn from. And in fact, in that, with that uh, being said, I want to quote... Uh, harken back to uh, Hafer's near-death experience, and she had a really good, good little explanation of of what I'm trying to do with this second goal. Let me see if I can pull it up here. So this was uh, a few, well, like four or five episodes ago. Hafer's near-death experience. We we kind of bring it up a lot. It it was a really good one. Let me see. Okay, note. I feel that all the images that were created in my mind during this experience before entering into the light are symbolic thought forms of something perhaps more profound that could serve in support of a translation of that which is essential experience. It is impossible to explain with our limited human language, yet I am now trying to to decipher it little by little. I noticed a change in the speed my mind worked, and developed my intuition or universal perception of life. It is difficult to translate with my physical brain that which is essential or infinite with conventional language. Perhaps through the art of telepathic communication, soul to soul, it can be done. I will continue trying to do this, and will see if someone who has experienced the same phenomenon or has had a similar experience has another part of the verbal puzzle. Among all of us, we can put together a clearer picture that can benefit those who do not read. 
Okay, so I think that that little passage just hits the nail on the head. Of it's kind of like forming a composite of of everyone's individual experiences. Uh, kind of forms this this tapestry that we can look at and uh, and understand what the divine experience is by looking at all these different images, not just through near death experiences and share death experiences and all the these things that we usually talk about, but also through throughout our history of of myth and dreams and and religious uh, traditions and rituals, and so that's where it gets into the kind of anthropological side of things. But okay, so with those two things in mind, <laughs> we're going to go through a lot of different stuff today. But um, I think a good place to start would be focusing on that first goal of trying to describe shared death experiences. I found a really good kind of summary. This is on Eternia.org. I've never been on here before, so I don't know kind of what they've got going on. But this seems to be a pretty good brief summation of of what a shared death experience is and its kind of different manifestations and and what it is. So I'm just going to read this uh, page here. Shared death experiences. Definition. Onlookers at the bedside of the dying often have profound spiritual experiences. The onlookers interpret their experiences as an empathic co-living of the passing away of a person who actually died. In terms of their core elements, Shared death experiences are indistinguishable from classic near-death experiences. Therefore, shared death experiences seem to call into question materialist neurophysiological explanations of near-death experiences. For the onlookers are not ill or injured, yet they report the identical phenomena reported by survivors of cardiac arrest or severe life-threatening illness. This analysis discusses shared death experiences in terms of their phenomenology, i.e. common characteristics, and implications for rational study of the question of life after death. Phenomenology The author Raymond Moody has studied shared death experiences beginning in 1973, but more intensively since about 1980. At present, he has interviewed hundreds of people who had extraordinary experiences or alterations of consciousness while attending the death of even someone else. The following elements characterize reports of shared death experiences. 1. Seeing the dying person's spirit leave the body. Bystanders say they see a roundish entity, often described as a golden grayish mist, rise from the upper part of the body. In some cases, the bystanders describe this as a transparent replica of the person who has died. 2. Accompanying the dying person partway toward a light. Bystanders say they seem to leave their own body and rise above it at the time when someone else died. Usually they report seeing a spirit of the person who died. At some point, The bystanders return to their own body, and the person who died seems to enter the light. 3. Experiencing a change in geometry of the room. Bystanders say that when someone else died, it seemed that they entered into another realm, 
that did not operate by the rules of three-dimensional geometry. For example, they may say they found themselves out of their bodies and viewing the room from an impossible angle. Sometimes it seems that the cubicle hospital room seems to take on the configuration of a funnel. However, they say that this alternate geometry is impossible to describe in the words of ordinary language. 4. Hearing beautiful music. Bystanders sometimes report that as someone in the room died, they heard beautiful music. Again, the music is said to be so beautiful that they find that no words are adequate to describe it. 5. Seeing a brilliant light. Bystanders say that an unearthly light of love and comfort filled the room as someone died. This was not an ordinary physical light, they say, but a supernatural light of peace and comfort. 6. Perceiving spirits entering the room. Bystanders say that they see apparitions, apparently of the dying person's deceased loved ones, enter the room around the point of death. 7. Empathically co-living the life review of a dying person. Bystanders view images or scenes of the life of the person who is passing away. Sometimes this takes the form of a holographic panorama that surrounds the bed of the dying. Implications of Shared Death Experiences for Afterlife Research The reported elements of shared death experiences are indistinguishable elements of classic near-death experiences. That is, the components of the narratives of the two types of experience are the same. Furthermore, narratives are all we have to go on in assessing the meaning of such experiences. Hence, there is no clear basis for saying that near-death experiences and shared death experiences are distinct phenomena. That implies that neurophysiological explanations of near-death experiences are not adequate. Bystanders at the death of someone else are not ill or injured, yet they report the same experience. Okay, so I thought that was a pretty good summation of what shared death ex- experiences can be, and I think we'll see some of those those different points in, in the other two shared death experiences that we talk about here in a little while, um, particularly the last two points of uh, seeing spirits in the room and and kind of living the life review with the person. We'll see that. But um, I thought this was, a, like I said, a, a good kind of summary of what the different manifestations and phenomenology of this experience, and I enjoyed the little... Um, questions about what the implications can be for the kind of materialist uh, explaining away of near-death exper- near-death experiences and spiritual experiences as such that um, those these various <laughs> symptoms and, and ex- uh, kind of features that one gets in a near-death experience one can also get in a shared death experience when there's no life-threatening, condition going on now there i would say that there is in a probably uh, there can be emotional distress but not always as we saw in in francis as she was just sleeping at night so um but i thought that was a very interesting place to to kind of go with with comparing the shared death experiences and near-death experiences and showing their kind of common basis in and how they appear to us 
So with that out of the way, I think we'll just talk more about, we'll start with talking about Francis's shared death experience and and then set up some of the things we're going to look at here as we go along. So to begin with, I'd like to kind of just start with her situation and, and that uh, she was just, Francis was just going to sleep. Like she, she, she didn't say that she was worried about her grandmother or, or anything like that. She, this was just her going to sleep at night. And we've had a couple different episodes where, um, you know, someone's just going to bed at night and maybe they've had a loved one who died or they're just had a spiritual experience kind of out of nowhere, just going to sleep. So again, this shows the, the power and, and kind of mystery of, of dreams and, and how they can overlap into, to full blown mystical spiritual experiences. Um, which is very just fascinating that it, it, presumably one of us tonight could go to sleep and, and have some incredible experience of something that is beyond us. And so I think, you know, and talking about, you know, dreams and everybody has dreams and and I feel like this this idea of shared death experiences are somewhat common. Like you hear, and this is, I know this isn't like backed up by specific data or anything like that or studies, but it's something that you hear in the culture, kind of in the consensus of of people that you hear these stories of, oh, when my mother died, I, I knew right away, you know, there's, you hear these kind of tales that people tell of, of these weird experiences that happen when, when a loved one passes away, and, and they can kind of vary widely from, from just, oh, I just had a feeling when, when my mother died, and, and I checked the time, and sure enough, that was when, when she was pronounced dead or something, you know, but it can, you know, go all the way to a full-blown shared death experience of, of actually being part of the dying process with someone. And so I just wanted to point that out, that in our culture, well, I can only kind of really speak for my culture, but at least the idea is there kind of in the undercurrents that weird things can happen when, when people die, when close loved ones die, and, and, and that... You hear stories like that, like when there's, you know, two uh, twins, you know, twin brothers or twin sisters, when one of them dies, the other one kind of like knows, like even though they're, it could be separated by, you know, live on other sides of the, the planet or whatever. But, you know, the, you hear these stories quite often. And so that is an interesting aspect that it, these things filter into our, just general sense, sense of our, you know, ourselves. And, and yeah, that's, I, I think that's very fascinating that, you know, it's not something that people can really study or anything, but you'll hear stories when people talk about the passing away of loved ones, of, of strange things that, that happen that can't really 
well, be explained or explained away as much as some people would like to. So I think that's interesting, and it's something to to be aware of. And, and you know, <laughs> it's, it's just fascinating. Um, so with that little preamble, I think we can talk more about the experience itself and uh, particularly the some of the i guess the aspect of her her dream was was very focused on at least the beginning was focused on water and this is something that we're going to uh run into again with the next shared death experience we talked to that she kind of paints a picture of of almost like being in a womb or or in an egg or something she me pull it up here. So So she says, I was asleep and I had an incredibly vivid dream in which I was surrounded by water and unable to breathe. The water was a kind of living water. I don't know how else to describe it other than maybe amniotic fluid. I could see shadows outside the water and knew they were people I loved, but we weren't really connected physically. Okay, so I think that little section right there contains many different <laughs> images and, and ideas that we can explore and t- try to root Francis's experience into something greater. And I almost don't know where to start, um, but I think we'll just kind of go piece by piece here. Uh, I, one thing that just before we dive into all the imagery and symbolism stuff is that that last part about seeing shadows of of people she knew and people she loved kind of outside this, uh, I don't know, water, this living water that she's in. That reminded me a lot of an aspect of Jay's near-death experience that we did a couple episodes ago where he kind of saw this door and there were figures of light kind of making gestures at him and waving at him. And so that's just an interesting kind of parallel that we have we have this similar kind of <laughs> pattern here of, you know, people uh, or beings that one is connected to kind of waving and gesturing from, from a distance, from across a threshold, so to speak. But now I guess we can just kind of dive into some associations that we can draw from this little, this little uh, you know, <laughs> image that she provides us of, of being inside a living water, and she just describes it as amniotic, which uh, clearly is associated with the womb and perhaps even the idea of an egg. And so there's a lot we can get into, and uh, there's a whole passage on water that I'm going to read from uh, my current favorite book that I've been reading called On Dreams and Death by the psychoanalyst Marie-Louise von Franz, and she, it's absolutely an amazing book. And so she has a whole kind of long passage on, on water and how it relates to uh, the death process in, in people's religious traditions, spiritual traditions, and also, also how it kind of relates to near-death experiences as well. So we'll, we'll talk about that here after the next share death experience because that also relates to water quite a bit. But, uh, you know, there, uh, the idea of living water 
has a lot of different associations that I probably couldn't <laughs> list completely, but um, uh, a big one would be to uh, compare it to alchemy, and that's something that Marie-Louise von Franz is going to talk about. But this idea of the kind of living magic water which cures all your diseases and stuff, it's um, perhaps known as the elixir of life, which I'll, I'll read briefly about what, what that idea is. The elixir of life, also known as the elixir of immortality, and sometimes equated with the name Philosopher's Stone, is a potion that supposedly grants the drinker eternal life and or eternal youth. This elixir is also said to cure all diseases. Alchemists in various ages and cultures sought the means of formulating the elixir. So uh, there's kind of uh, many different names for it that that people have, have listed throughout history. Um, the elixir has had hundreds of names. One scholar of Chinese history reportedly found over a thousand names for it. Among them, Amit Ras or Amir, Amrita, Ab Ahiat, <laughs> some of these are hard to say, Maharas, Ab Haiwan, Dancing Water, Chazma I Kasur, Mansarovar of or the Pool of Nectar, Philosopher's Stone, Somaras. The word elixir was not used until the 7th century AD and derives from the Arabic name for the miracle substances, al-ixir. Some view it as a metaphor for the Spirit of God. Now this is interesting um, for, uh, that we can get into a little bit. For example, Jesus' reference to the water of life or the fountain of life. But whoever drinks from the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's John 4.14. And there are also associations with um, uh, alcohol, <laughs> spirits, uh, which, you know, derived that name for, for its kind of intoxicating effects, obviously. like, um, And there's a whole kind of... Uh, you know, explanation of, of alchemy and their different beliefs around the spirits and kind of uh, liquor and alcohol. It says the Scots and Irish adopted uh, the name for their liquid gold. The Gaelic name for whiskey is Ushibretha, Ushibetha, or water of life. And another alchemical name for water was, or the living water was Aquavitae, which Aquavita perhaps, uh, one of those. And that was, again, a kind of concentrated ethanol and alcohol. And they had many kind of ideas about that. And, and the, the, the connection to, um, you know, spirituality and, and, and spirit with alcohol is an interesting one. I mean, I know that uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, was kind of <laughs> influenced by by Carl Jung, and the founder of AA kind of had a correspondence with Jung talking about um, how to, I, I guess, cure the evil kind of uh, evils of alcoholism and, and overconsumption of it. So, and I know it it kind of has a, I guess, an emphasis placed on a on a higher power, but. Um, so there are all these see there's all these little roads to go down and it's very hard for me to kind of keep it focused but so 
you know, the water of life, living water, uh, you know, you could associate it with ideas of the Holy Grail, fountain of youth, that sort of thing. All of these different ideas are wrapped up in just that one phrase. Um, and, and I guess to go down another road is to look at the amniotic kind of side of it. We get associations with, with the womb, with being in a womb of rebirth, uh, with an egg. Um, you know, an egg we've, we've already seen and we saw in Jim's near-death experience, this image of an egg that emerges out of, out of his experience. And so it's actually central to his experience and, and many different cultures and mythologies that have surrounded eggs. And, and if you want to hear about some of those, you can go listen to his episode. But um, I found a really good passage describing kind of the relation of eggs to the dying process and ideas about death in, in this book uh, on dreams and death by Marie-Louise Marie von Franz whose name is really fun to say. Um, so I'll just read it, and um, yeah, I think it'll, it'll be a good amplification of, of what we can talk about regarding ideas around, you know, the egg and, and the dying process and what, what that image relates to um, in, in relation to this whole kind of I don't know, womb, she's in this water, I don't know what its boundaries are, but she describes it as as kind of a living amniotic water. So, similar to the birth image is another motif in the Camarios text, the suggestion that adepts should treat their material like a bird which hatches its eggs in mild warmth. This idea also occurs over and over again in the alchemical texts. From the beginning of time, antique man wondered with fascination how an egg, which when opened contains only half-liquid dead substances, could still produce a living being, only by being warmed and without the help of any external agent. The alchemists compared the production of their stone to this miracle. The I Ching, the Chinese oracle book, provides a parallel to this, which seems to me worth mentioning. It concerns the description of a time condition called Cheng Fu, inner truth. Richard Wilhelm comments, The character Fu, truth, is actually the picture of a bird's foot over a fledgling. It suggests the idea of brooding. An egg is hollow. The light-giving power must work to quicken it from the outside but there must be a germ of life within, if life is to be awakened. In a similar manner, and in this case certainly without any cultural transfer, the alchemist Gerhard Dorn, 16th century, called the innermost soul the self of man an inner truth, and he looked upon alchemical work as a hatching out of this truth from physical matter. Birth symbolism is especially and intensively elaborated in the Egyptian death liturgy. Thus, in Rubric 170 of the Book of the Dead, we read, Shake off the earth which is in your flesh. You are Horus in his egg. Or Rubric 85, I am the heightened, the lord of the Ta Tebu, 
My name is the boy in the place, the child in the field. Or, I am yesterday. My name is he who has seen millions of years. I am the Lord of eternity. I am the one in the ujat eye, and I am the one in the egg. With it, life is given to me. Or, I enter the world from which I merged, after having counted, renewed my first birth. It is true that this last rubric concerns the sun god, but every dead person repeats the fate of the god, and like the sun, is reborn as child and hatched out as a bird. Okay, so I thought that was just an interesting elaboration of this idea of of the egg and, you know, kind of how it manifests itself in many different aspects. Now, we've kind of mentioned alchemy a few times, and I should probably give some idea of that so it, you know, <laughs> makes a little more sense. A lot of people think of alchemy as just some silly uh, precursor to chemistry, which it kind of is, but... Um, what Jung saw in alchemy and, and uh, Dr. von Franz saw in alchemy was the kind of physicalization of psychological processes. There's lots of these weird symbols and ideas that emerge in alchemy. And what they thought was going on was that people were, these alchemists were projecting their psyche into these material chemical processes that as they were you know manipulating matter with fire and and mixing different elements and chemicals and getting these reactions that not only were they doing that kind of you know just scientifically in a way and actually seeing what happens but also projecting a spiritual element onto it and so by looking at that what they thought about these different processes we can kind of see um, elements of their psychology and and as such you know with the idea that um, a psyche is collective at a certain point so if you go deep enough into an individual then you can understand and see uh, parts of ourselves of, of what uh, something that is common to all humanity and 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 what it suggests about our, our psyches and and the divine so it's it's very interesting to get into, and and as you've kind of already seen, not only with this idea of an egg and uh, their idea that it was this dead kind of thing that is half dead, and yet through warmth from the outside, and also as they mentioned, kind of an inner germ, it it creates life, and so there are these associations of of the egg with with the idea of death and. And how we, although we are dead, you know, lifeless matter, there is this germ that emerges out of us and continues life. And so I think that's that's part of why the egg is such an uh, appropriate symbol. And also, you know, the uh, uh, associations with the womb and, and birth. You know, many near-death experiences often feature a tunnel, and, and there are many ideas that emerge of of the tunnel being some t- somehow associated with the birth canal, like it is some kind of uh, entrance uh, from the womb of of 
I don't know, dark, the dark womb into the next life and, and that sort of thing. And so there are very, just this small kind of uh, few sentences that, that uh, Francis talks about. We, there are all these kind of vast web of images and ideas that come out of it. And, and that kind of helps us to, to ground it and, and understand kind of more about what she might be going through in that moment. So uh, from there, we have another kind of interesting thing that, that stands out quite a bit, and that is that she, she, she finally decides to breathe in the water. She's kind of fighting against it, and she, when she goes along with the experience and breathes in the water, as she said, it kind of suddenly changes. It's kind of an immediate change. And then what comes next is a really interesting image, and I, I don't quite know what to make with it, but make of it, but we'll do our best. It says, A big black paw hit my forehead, followed immediately by what I can only describe as peace beyond all understanding. Now, I would probably have to ask Francis kind of more about that and to see what kind of paw it is. I mean, when I hear that, I... I think of a dog. I mean, I suppose it could be any kind of like a cat or, or, or something, but um, there is a, a kind of association with dogs and, and death and, you know, they're man's best friend. And so we have a pretty close connection with them. And so they often appear with, within us as certain kind of symbols and images. But uh, I also came, came across a passage on dogs and, and on dreams and death. And so I'm going to read that real quick just to, again, kind of amplify our ideas surrounding this, assuming that, that this is, uh, it was a dog's paw that, <laughs> that Francis experienced. It's just kind of a, a very strange getting kind of hit by a paw on your head, and then you're in this. It's kind of like this is where her shared death experience starts in a way. I suppose, or this is kind of where it becomes, I don't know, the, the physicalization of it happens where she, she sees the hospital room and she sees the doctor and, and stuff. And, and that's actually a, a very interesting kind of synchronistic kind of um, part of the experience where she, she sees the doctor, she sees the, this other woman that's in there and she's able to describe them. And that's, again, a synchronicity or a pairing of an inner event and an outer event. And we'll see those a couple different times with um, kind of associating the time of death when, when this experience happened. But um, anyway, let's, let's talk about the uh, idea of, of dogs and the association of dogs with death. Death is more often represented as a wolf or dog, however, than as a sinister other in human form. Hell, for instance, that's H-E-L, is the sister of the Fenris wolf, the latter corresponding to the Greek Cerberus, son of the Echidna serpent. Popular beliefs of the Germans and Swiss have preserved legends in which the appearance of a black dog announces death. The night Jung's mother died, an event of which he was not yet aware, he dreamed. I was in a dense, gloomy forest. It was a heroic, primeval landscape. 
Suddenly, I heard a piercing whistle. My knees shook. Then there were crashings in the underbrush, and a gigantic wolfhound with a fearful, gaping maw burst forth. It tore past me, and I suddenly knew. The wild huntsman had commanded it to carry away a human soul. The next morning, I received the news of my mother's passing. The wild huntsman, Jung explains, is Wotan, the mercury of the alchemists. Thus the dream clearly says that the soul of his mother was taken into the greater territory of the self, into that wholeness of nature and spirit in which conflicts and contradictions are resolved. That's a quote from Jung. The dog is also often described mythologically as a healing and protecting escort into the beyond. Thus the Egyptian dog-headed or jackal-headed god Anubis is the agent of resurrection, and among the Aztecs, a yellow or red dog, Zolotl, brings the corpses in the kingdom of the dead back to life. In India, too, Shiva, the destroying god of death, is called lord of the dogs. The Batavian death goddess, Nehalinia, was portrayed with a basket of apples on one side and a wolfhound on the other. And Virgil tells us in the Aeneid that the hell dog Cerberus is actually the earth which devours corpses. Snakes and birds can also on occasion represent death. Okay, so that was just a, a kind of brief amplification of this association between dogs and death, mythologically, and how it kind of appears in you know, vast, vastly different cultures around the world, this association of dogs and death. And, you know, it could be associated because of our spiritual connection with dogs. It could be associated due to more nasty things of, you know, perhaps early in our history, dogs kind of scavenging on dead people, you know, that were kind of uh, you know, r- removed from whatever settlement or, or place that people were living. Um, so there's <laughs> there's lots of reasons that this association may have emerged, but it is very interesting nonetheless that mythologically in, in different places, dogs have kind of had this kind of negative death aspect of being scary and, and guarding the dead, kind of like Cerberus, or a more helpful kind of aspect like the Egyptian god Anubis, or this uh, Aztec dog, uh, Zolotl, that brings corpses back to life. And again, in this you know, brief passage I read, she, uh, Dr. Fran Franz read a, a kind of excerpt of um, an, uh, an essay by uh, Carl Jung that we've, we read before on the podcast on on life after death, and and this he is actually talking about having a, to to some degree, a shared death experience, or at least a kind of this synchronistic pairing of an inner event and an outer event of of dreaming this kind of terrifying dream of a, a dog rushing in through the forest and 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 it's on its way to retrieve a a soul, and and when he wakes up, he. he Here's the news that his mother has passed away, and so I, if you're that kind of interested you, I would definitely suggest going back and listening to that that episode where we read the whole thing because it's it's very fascinating. So, lots of connections in this <laughs> this episode, but um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, we just have this strange image of of this paw, this black paw, which is, uh, you know, if, assuming it's a dog's paw, it has these associations with, with uh, all these different kind of um, spiritual and mythological ideas. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Now, I might be, it might not be a dog's paw, so I, that might have been uh, kind of a worthless tangent. But, you know, hopefully, nonetheless, it, it kind of gives you an idea of, of how these different images kind of emerge to, to form this kind of vocabulary, which, like I mentioned with the, our second goal of this episode, talking about what Hafur, Hafur had mentioned and, and trying to form a composite of all these different ideas that surround our kind of our spiritual and and uh, psychological lives and and what that means so um i think we'll now kind of just finish up talking about francis's near-death experience shared death experience sorry that's habit and and then uh, move on to the next one which is fascinating as well so um just Interesting things to note is that you know she, um, she mentions that she she's in, she kind of becomes her grandmother in a way, which um, is different than the other two shared death experiences that we're going to talk about. She she is kind of living this experience through her grandmother, and so there's no separation between the two of them, which is quite interesting. And so um, it's kind of like she's you know just living through her grandmother's eyes and her grandmother's experience at that moment. And um, she mentions that she kind of, th- she, she says, think slash talked to the, the doctors to let them know that it was okay. Um, interesting kind of, <laughs> we see that all the time, this kind of uh, communication via thought. And, um, and then the experience continues into a, a light that emerges in the the hospital room, I, I suppose. And so uh, Francis slash her grandmother, they're kind of in the same boat at this moment, um, go through it. And then she sees a beautiful meadow, this kind of beautiful landscape, a lawn. And uh, there was a man gardening, and that man was her grandfather. And so... Very interesting. We'll see again another um, kind of in the next in the next shared death experience a uh, a reunification of of a grandmother with a grandfather. And so, just um, here we have the uh, presence of of different uh, you know loved ones that seeing different uh, deceased loved ones come back and to to kind of welcome the um, a person who's dying. And so. That was it's just a very, uh, very interesting story, and um, um, I'm I'm very grateful to Francis for sharing it. So, and she she adds the the kind of extra information that uh, her grandmother died from her lungs filling up with fluid. So there there again we have this kind of association of of water of fluid with both life and death and and a kind of interesting kind of conjunction of those two so so as we have seen many times these whatever this kind of spiritual imagistic language is it often speaks in 
antimonies and opposites coming together and and uh, many of these images have a dual aspect of you know uh, of being both good and bad and and this kind of conjunction of those so um we will i think what we'll do now is there is a dream uh mentioned in in uh, on dreams and death uh this book and uh it's going to feature prominently in the passage that I'm going to read following this next shared death experience so I figured I'd go ahead and read it here because there's also kind of there's there's kind of an association at least in the same imagery that that we see in Francis's so I think I think that will be um pretty clear from just from reading it so um so this is a a dream of a man who who died a few days later and a lot of this book kind of focuses on things like that and and trying to learn uh, what what we can take away from what dreams tell us about death and and so on so and the last dream of another man who died a few days later was as follows I am on or in a sky blue air liquid that has the shape of an egg and i have the feeling that i am falling into the blue into the universe but then it is not so i am caught and carried by a little blue cloth or by the flakes which hold me now i fall into the universe i want to try it but i do not lose my hold and i am caught by cloths and by people who speak to me the small cloths surround me red stairways drip and form a christmas tree so that particular passage was she she brings it up in relation to the idea of a tree but um as you can see it is it's quite uh, it's quite associated with with the other things we've been talking about it's in the he's in this weird air liquid that is in the shape of an egg and that just kind of immediately makes me think of Francis's kind of image of of being in this living water of of people being on the outside and being kind of in this amniotic kind of womb/egg kind of place and so uh yeah this this dream we'll talk about more in this this kind of longer passage that we'll talk uh, we'll read after after this next shared shared death experience um so This next one that we're going to talk about is from a woman named Barbara. And so this one's this one's going to be a doozy. I'm I'm this is like I'm 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 going for everything in this episode. Like it's this is probably going to be a very long episode as I'm recording this, but um this is a near-death experience and a shared death experience. So Barbara has a near-death experience where she drowns. um and and she visits a particular place across a river and then later on she has a shared death experience when her grandmother dies and she goes back to that same place and that is fascinating in and of itself but um so I'll just kind of give you some background um this occurred in 1967 is when the NDE occurred um and so Barbara was kind of jumping off of a dam and and got pulled under and, and drowned. And then uh let me scroll on down here and um the 
shared death experience with the death of her grandmother was in uh, 1989. So quite a big gap between these two events, but they end up in the same place. And so absolutely amazing and fascinating. So um, without any further ado and further preamble, we will read Barbara's near-death experience and shared death experience. I was jumping off the top of a small dam into the river. I followed the example of some older boys who were doing it for fun. It was a dangerous and risky activity, but I thought I could do it successfully. My first few jumps off the dam were exhilarating. I just needed to be sure that I jumped out far enough to clear the cascade of water falling down from the dam. Otherwise, one could get pulled down under the water and pinned to the river bottom. Needless to say, I made too short of a jump and fell into the cascading water. I was tumbled and pushed to the bottom of the river and pinned down flat by the water pressure. I tried to break free, but was not strong enough. I held my breath and thought to myself, this is it, I'm going to die. The moment I drew water into my lungs, I thought, dying is so easy, only one breath span between here and there. It was soft, like gossamer on a butterfly's wing. My life flashed before my eyes in a rapid sequence, like flashcards or playing cards being ruffled quickly. All of my life moments, including the inconsequential moments, as well as important instances, they all came flooding through. From the red canvas of my tennis shoes, to the wind and smell of the oak trees I loved to climb. Everything I experienced was shown frame by frame in a part second. I was suddenly pulled by many filaments located in the center of my chest. I went forward like a kite of a string, down through a tunnel or wormhole. I went extremely fast, like a bottle rocket. Whoosh! I was flying toward a bright light at the end of the tunnel. Then I was standing in bare feet on a river sand. I was standing on the edge of a great river, which flowed from left to right. It looked to be a couple of miles wide. Behind me were stabilized dunes with willow and adler trees, intermittently spaced along the river's edge. There was grass in the dunes. I first looked for the sun but found nothing that provided a light source for daylight conditions. I then looked across the river to see such an amazing world of mountains, trees, waterfalls, and exotic flowers. Everywhere was green, green, green. It looked like our own natural world, but on steroids. There was so much life with colors, textures, light, and smells that were all in a state of absolute perfection and abundance. I could scarcely take it in. Then whoosh, I felt myself being pulled behind by the same filaments between my shoulder blades back through the wormhole. I found myself being resuscitated at the river's edge. A couple of teenage boys had jumped into the water, found me, and pulled me out. And now her story continues with one of the questions at the end of the experience. 
At any time in your life, has anything ever reproduced any part of the experience? Yes, I experienced a duplication of this NDE with my grandmother's passing. We had a shared NDE. It was in June 1989. I was working in mineral exploration as a biogeochemist and soil microbiologist. I had finished my lab work a bit late and was in a hurry to get home and dumped two vials of chemicals into the laboratory basin to get rid of them. A strong chemical reactive vapor rose up from the sink and hit me full on in the face. I immediately rinsed off my eyes and face in the laboratory emergency shower. I ended up having an allergic reaction to the vapor, which resulted in my eyes being swollen shut. Thank goodness the next day was Saturday. I was unable to do much around the house, so I lay down on the couch with ice packs over my eyes to reduce the swelling. My partner was in the room with me when I was doing this. As I lay on the couch, images began to flow into my mind. The creak of the kitchen, a metal cabinet door at my grandmother's house would creak every time she went to open it. I saw a bare spot on the carpet inside her front door and saw her watering pansies in her backyard. I remember telling my partner that I thought I was dying since it appeared that my life was beginning to flash before my eyes like in the NDE as a teenager. I even asked her, am I dying? She said no, that she didn't think so. With that feedback, I began to look more closely at the images flashing through my brain. Although they were familiar, I could recognize that they were not particularly mine. I told my partner, I think these pictures belong to my grandmother. She said, we should check the time. We wrote it down as 11.26 a.m. Immediately after that, I felt pulled by my solar plexus filaments into the wormhole and toward the light. It all looked and felt exactly like what had happened before. I felt calm and curious, but was wondering what was happening. Whoosh! I landed with my feet in wet river sand, barefoot again right back where I had visited before. Woe was the only thought that came to mind. My senses were operating at a high level of sensitivity. The color of blue in the sky was robin's egg blue, and it was so crisp and clear. The sky was the bluest of all blues. I could see each grain of sand with such clarity. I could smell the acrid scent of leaves and saw small debris floating in the water. I heard the breeze rustle through the grass on the dune, as clear as sandpaper rubbing against a chalkboard. Everything seemed alive, full of energy, bursting at the seams in abundance, wellness, and potency. Again I was facing the river. I heard heavy sobbing off to my right and saw my grandmother crumpled on the ground in the sand at the river's edge. I knew what was wrong. She had always been terrified of water her entire life. Grandma, Grandma, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I asked as I gently went to touch her left shoulder. Grandma, it's Barbara. Barbara, do you remember me? She was inconsolable and continued to weep 
I placed my arm around her shoulders and whispered to her, The water is not deep, Grandma. It's only an illusion. It barely comes up to your ankles. She continued to weep. As I was holding her, a young man about the age of 16 came running over the dunes towards us. He had on long swimming trunks with a towel over his shoulder. He stopped short when he saw us and asked if he could help. I told him the problem. He placed his hand on her right shoulder and asked if it was true that she was afraid of the water. She looked at him and said yes. He returned her gaze and said, Camille, I'm here to help you. Let's do this together. She looked at him again and you could see wonder ripple across her face. Clinton? She asked. Yes, he replied. It turned out to be my grandfather, her husband as a young man and her only love. He helped her up off the ground, brushed her off, and they both stepped into the river together. At that moment, I was jerked back through the wormhole by the filaments between my shoulder blades. I woke up on the couch and told my partner all about it. One day later, I received the call that my grandmother had died. I asked my sister at the time of death. She replied, 11.26 yesterday morning. I brought this story forward at my grandmother's wake and told them all about what I had seen and experienced. The room was dead silent. Then my mother smacked the table with her hand and said, Hot damn, I knew someone would catch the crossing. In our family, someone always catches the crossing. I never asked her about that comment, but she sure sounded familiar with other stories in her own family. I have not had this occur again, but I can see the landscape and the situation clearly in my memory as if it were yesterday. Okay, so that was Barbara's near-death experience and share-death experience two in one um i thought it was it was fascinating um i think we'll kind of just start off by talking about some of the elements in in her near-death experience and shared death experience and also uh comparing it back to uh, francis's shared death experience and 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 kind of seeing how they're alike and they differ i mean there were there were certain uh, moments in this story that just really made me think of Francis's experience and um there's kind of this strange link like uh particularly the moment where uh Barbara's kind of pinned to the bottom and she's about to die and she's um kind of bracing herself to to die and to to breathe in the water and and so uh she said I held my breath and thought to myself this is it I'm going to die the moment I drew water into my lungs, I thought, dying is so easy, only one breath span between here and there. It was soft, like gossamer on a butterfly's wing. Um, I mean, that immediately made me think of Francis's near-death experience, but it, it's very strange. Francis is in a dream, and she's struggling not to, to breathe in water, and here Barbara is actually physically trying not to, to breathe in the water. And, and But in both cases, that is what... Well, obviously, when someone drowns, like, you know, that's going to cause them to die. But it was just kind of an interesting parallel that, that we're focusing on water so much and, and the breath um, in these two cases. 
And so, um, you know, that was just a, a very kind of strange parallel that <laughs> that I was reading these two stories, and and they both have this this aspect of of breathing in this water, and but obviously one is a kind of very traumatic, awful death experience in the physical world, and the other, and Francis is being in a dream, um, presumably where one could breathe water if one wanted to. So. Uh, just an interesting parallel. And then Barbara has a, a life review, and she describes it quite vividly, all these little details. She's very good about writing these the details of the things she's experiencing. It's very uh, kind of tactile, and it makes you feel like you're there with her. She's very good at writing um, and, and expressing these, these things that happen to her. So um, she she says that all of her moments, uh, her life moments, even the inconsequential inconsequential ones, kind of come back to her. And so she has a classic kind of life review. Although there's not this aspect that we see in most near death experiences of of uh, that. Well, we see in some near death experiences of this idea of being judged while you have your life flash before your eyes. Some kind of just relive their life in, in, a, in a moment, and others, it's kind of more of a, uh, they're in the presence of another light being or God or somebody, and they're kind of reviewing it uh, a little more closely, and, and there's this aspect of, of kind of, I guess, judgment, but judgment coming from the experiencer and, and light of the person, the being that's with them. Um, but she does have a, a life review, which is you know, classic near-death experience kind of element. And then she, she mentions quite, uh, quite again, with the tactile physical descriptions that she's, uh, she's kind of pulled out through her the center of her chest, I, I assume her, her solar plexus. Again, that has a, its, own, <laughs> its own imagery of the sun and all that stuff, but we won't go down that, that rabbit hole. Um, but she's pulled out by these little filaments, I guess, she said she went forward like a kite of a string down a, a tunnel, of course. Uh, very, very, very common um, in death experiences of, of having a tunnel. And then um, there's this bright light at the end of, of the tunnel, and she finds herself uh, on a river, on the edge of a river. And we are, we'll talk a lot about river kind of mythology, symbolism, all that stuff here once we read the long passage on water from uh, uh, Marie-Louise von Franz's book that we've been referencing this episode. But um, uh, so just some other little details that stood out to me. She she mentions that she she's at this river and she's describing everything and it's it's quite you know beautiful and and there are dunes and trees and she, you know grass and everything and she's she's looking for the sun but there is no source of light, and yet, yet it's like perfect daylight. Probably a very weird experience for a human being. You know, we live our lives, our entire lives, under the kind of cycle of the sun, and to have daylight without a sun is just probably very strange and and kind of you know uncanny. Um, but that reminded me of. of I don't remember which experience, which episode it was, but uh, one of the episodes we, we did, someone mentioned that 
it seemed like things kind of shone from themselves. This idea that they uh, things instead of having light light reflect off of objects and and things in in this realm that they shone their own light, which is a very poetic and and interesting idea. Um, and so there's just an abundance of of light and textures and smells, and she's she is soaking all this in, and then she's pulled back from this kind of strange river paradise kind of realm, and and she's being resuscitated. Um, thank God to those uh, boys who managed to swim under, you know, a waterfall and and pull her out and resuscitate her. So that was that's just a little amazing moment of heroism. Um, and so then we get into her shared death experience, which again occurs uh, similar to Francis was her grandmother, and so I guess she. She got a bunch of chemicals in her eyes, and she's kind of like uh, laying around the house, recuperating, keeping her eyes closed. And then these little images start to pop into her consciousness, her awareness. And at first, she thinks that they're her own memories because they're things that are familiar. But they they start to they start to focus around her grandmother and her grandmother's house and stuff. And so she 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 strikes her as odd, and she asks her partner to. To tell her what time it is and write it down, and and so here we have the kind of acknowledgement of a uh, again this synchronistic linking of an inner event and an outer event that they write down the time when all this is happening, and so she so these images start to emerge and she kind of leans into it. It seems like she she examines it a little more closely, um, and and. Um, and then she again is sucked, like by these filaments through her solar plexus, uh, through her chest into this wormhole into light. And lo and behold, she is, she's back where she was when she had her near death experience. And she says she's calm and curious, which I guess, uh, frankly, is is quite a feat. I mean. <laughs> you were just laying on your couch and recuperating because your eyes are all burned up and suddenly you're the same place that you you uh, visited when you died out of the blue. I think that would be pretty shocking, but she's uh, very strong and is, is just kind of have a very good attitude about it. Um, and here she mentions something. Uh, she's right back at the same place and um, she, her senses are, are very, uh, active, operating very efficiently, very high level of, of sensory input. Little detail, which harkens back to Francis's, I mean, all these images that we're discussing, she mentions that the sky was a robin's egg blue. Another, another egg reference, um, just keep popping up. Um, you know, that's just a description of a color, so I'm not going to attribute too much to that, but just interesting nonetheless that all these things are kind of woven together. We got the water, we got the got egg imagery, that sort of thing. And and as we see as we go along, um, we have another situation with um, a dead, uh, dying uh, grandmother. And um, 
So she's kind of taking it all in and the abundance and the, the life that's bursting through. And she, she gives great descriptions again of the kind of the feeling of the place. And she hears crying off to her, her right. Um, and it's her grandmother. And so she's, the grandmother's not really responding to her. And she um, uh, kind of figures out that the, her grandmother's terrified of water. And she has been her entire life. And um, tries to tell her that this river that they're standing next to is not deep. It's not, um, it, it looks scarier than it is. It's, it's actually, I guess, just ankle depth. And so um, she, she's trying to console her grandmother and, uh, until a young man appears. And uh, it is revealed that this young man, who's about, I guess, 16, is uh, uh, Barbara's deceased grandfather, her, uh, the grandmother's husband. And so she responds to him and and he and she is like all shocked to see. It's really sweet, um, happy to see him, and and uh, he helps her up, and and they step into the river together. And then she is uh, Barbara is pulled back by the filaments, but strangely through her shoulder blades, kind of the opposite. You think the front of the body pulls her out, the the chest to begin the experience, and kind of interesting how she's pulled back through her. Well, her back um, to go back. So, and then we have the confirmation of the synchronistic kind of phenomenon. This was not a random hallucination, but um, Barbara gets the confirmation that when she was having this experience, um, she talks to her sister, and her sister tells her that uh, her grandmother passed away at eleven twenty-six, which is when uh, she told her partner to take note of the time that this experience began happening to her. And then a, an interesting kind of tidbit about um, at the wake, she's she's kind of telling everybody about it and, and doesn't really seem like anybody knows what to make of this experience. And But her her mother was kind of got all excited and said that she knew someone would, would catch the crossing, as she says, and someone... And Barbara doesn't really elaborate, and she said she never really followed up with her mom about that phrase. But apparently, in her family history, there there have been um, experiences of of a crossing a river. Perhaps there is some aspect of of the imagery that each one of us will experience when we die, or have some kind of NDE or spiritual experience that is um, related to that of our family. I, that's the first time I've kind of encountered that idea, but it's interesting nonetheless. And so that was kind of the the um, summary of her near-death experience and shared death experience. And <laughs> you just got to kind of shake your head and, and, and in amazement at, at what that kind of implies. I mean... She went back to the exact same place where she had had a near-death experience when um, her grandma passed away. And, and you know, that, that kind of harkens to, uh, you know, links back to what we were talking about in the um, page I read about the general kind of summary of shared-death experiences that it's this kind of interesting 
counterargument to the usual, I guess, materialist claim that these um, experiences, near-death experiences, are triggered by stress and of a life-threatening illness or condition or emergency or whatever that our bodies react to whatever stress is going on and and form these kind of hallucinations of dying in heaven and all this different stuff but you know um you know if if she goes to the same place kind of out of the blue just by following this kind of breadcrumb trail of images that appear while she's got her eyes closed eyes closed that's not uh obviously not a stressful or um, life-threatening event, and you know that's so. That's kind of a counter-argument, but at the same time, I don't really like. As you may have noticed, I never really talk much about the whole materialist kind of skeptical arguments to it because I'm not really trying to convince uh, people who hold those views because they don't, I feel like the only thing that would ever convince them would be to to have a experience of their own and to, um, uh, to, you know, assuming they didn't try to write it off as something, but, you know, really to go through it themselves. And, and, and really that's kind of all that, all that we can do. And, and I think that's the big takeaway of, of, you know, learning about near-death experiences is, is the idea that you yourself are capable of of having one or or similar related phenomena um because clearly you know although there are common aspects everyone is different i've never never read, read two near death experiences or shared death experiences or fear death experiences whatever that are exactly the same so uh, you know i so the whole argument with the kind of more materialistic scientific side of thing is I just, I don't find that very fruitful to try to engage with. I mean, I'm actually, <laughs> I, I'm quite jealous of their um, security and, uh, you know, their kind of, uh, you know, their very established, <laughs> established kind of, uh, way of dealing with things i'm i'm quite jealous of it cuz it's like it's like that thinking that you're it's like thinking you're in your bathtub when you're actually in the ocean like it's it's that different you know being open to the spiritual side of things you know there are things that we can't control that come to us and overtake us and that pull us into a, an entire another dimension like she was just laying on her couch or she's in her house, like, you know, recuperating. And, and all of a sudden, she is pulled into a whole nother God knows what. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I wish that I, you know, sometimes I wish that I had the security of just, of, of pure scientific, uh, objective kind of materialism, because that would, oh, geez, that would be, just so warm and secure and, and able to explain away everything by by a simple wave of the hand. So, um, but anyway, I, I don't want to digress too far. But, you know, uh, there are people who, who tend to engage with, with that a lot more than I tend to do because what I'm primarily focused on is the, the meaning that is 
in these experiences. They're not purely random hallucinations. You know, purely random hallucinations would be random. Like, there there wouldn't be a this kind of centering of meaning around certain uh, images, symbols, and, and that sort of thing. Like, there there is a cohesiveness to them and in their the messages that they express. So that is what what tends to interest me and I feel like I can I can, you know, add something to the conversation, you know, I'm not a doctor or or neuro <laughs> neuro uh um scientist or anything like that, so I can't really talk about the brain and all that, you know, how how our consciousness interacts with physical matter and in the brain and stuff. I, I just I can't add anything in that respect. So I, I stick to the um things that I know and that is uh thinking about culture and, and the things that we believe and 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 meaning and things like that. So um so <laughs> we have uh a two in one near death experience and shared death experience. Um again showing the variety of the shared death experience and and also kind of proving the point of that that little summary that we talked about how the phenomenology of both different kinds of experiences shared death experience and near death experience is essentially the same the only difference being um the uh, situation going on that the person is in, um, but the actual kind of unfolding of the experience, and apparently the, in this case, the location, the end re- result of the experience is is pretty much the same. So that is just absolutely, I, I don't know what to make of it. That's very interesting. Um, so now I think. Now I think we will go into the talking about um, more about water and its different kind of associations and and uh, imagery associated with water and and how it relates to death and the dying process because both different uh, stories that we've talked about so far have heavily kind of featured the idea of water and so I came across this great uh kind of long passage um it's definitely on the lengthy side uh, in in the book i've been reading and so um i thought it would be very useful to share it and talk about some of the ideas she um dr von franz talks about rivers which we will explore kind of more in depth after um reading reading from the book and uh and kind of trying to understand well and understand and root um, this imagery in uh, in the human experience. So uh, I will <laughs> pipe in some music because it's it's a little long and I don't want you to get bored. So uh, this is the uh, a passage on water from on dreams and death. Whereas on the one hand the beyond is often described mythologically as fiery in either the positive or the negative sense. There are, on the other hand, equally many, if not more, witnesses who describe the resurrection of the dead as a rebirth from water, while in alchemy and in the Egyptian world of the dead, fire and water are sometimes explicitly equated. 
In ancient China, as mentioned above, it was believed that the dead continued to live on in the groundwater under the earth, and a similar idea predominated in Western antiquity. As Martin Nink points out in his beautiful work, The Significance of Water in the Worship and Life of the Ancients, the ancient Greeks believed that all water springs from the depths of the earth, where the large underground rivers Acheron and Kokitos and the Stygian Lake were located. The lord of these waters was Hades, the underworld god. All things had their source in this sacred underground world. Marriage, healing, and new life belong to its realm. The black Styx, however, is in the land of the dead. To drink its water brought death, but it also granted immortality if one drank it on certain days. The Elysian fields and the islands of the blessed lie on the other side of the river of death. Water is associated with the nocturnal states of the soul, as Nink calls them, with dream, ecstasy, and trance. Expressed in psychological language, it is an image of the collective unconscious. According to Timarchus, dead souls wander about on this dream sea like swimming luminous points or stars. They stream through the depths and upward toward the moon, which is the residing place of purified souls. As Oceanus, this water encircles the cosmos and is the origin of all life even of the entire world. Zosimos called the water the round element, Omega. This may presumably be traced back to the Egyptian idea that Osiris represents a round water element. A text for the protection of Osiris reads as follows. You are large and green, like your name, large green ocean. Truly you are as great and round as the circle which embraces the Hanebu Islands. Truly you are as round and mighty as the round mighty sea. One is reminded here of the dream described earlier in which the dying man hesitated to enter a large blue egg-shaped air liquid. The Camarios text also speaks of waters flooding over the dead body in the underworld before it is reborn in its glorified form. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it is said that the deceased comes to the hill of water. O hill of water, those who have died have no power over you, for your water is fire, your waves are fire. If I could only possess you and drink from your stream, I greet you, O God, who is in the hill of water. I have come to you so that you may give me possession of the water so that I may drink from the stream, as you have done for that great God for whom the flood comes, from whom the plants are renewed, living creatures grow and vegetation flourishes. Grant that the flood comes to me. This inundation was, by analogy, equated by the Egyptians with the natron bath into which they placed the dead body at the beginning of the mummification process. Thus, a coffin text runs as follows. O Osiris In-In, come down and purify yourself, together with Ra, in the Natron Sea, and wrap yourself in the garments of life. 
The word natron is derived from the Egyptian NTR, which means God, divine. So the immersion of the dead body in the natron solution literally meant a deification and the transformation of the deceased into the god Osiris. Furthermore, in the embalmment liturgy, the hieroglyph for the god of the Nile was drawn on the bandages of the left hand of the deceased, while the officiant repeated the following formula. O Osiris NN, the Nile, the great god, comes to you in order to fill your offering with cool water. He gives you nun, the primal water, which comes from the cavern, the swirling water which comes from both mountains. You drink from them and they satisfy you. Your body is filled with fresh water. Your coffin is filled with the tide. Your throat is overflowing. You are Nun, the oldest one, the father of the gods. In the sixth of the vigil hours of Osiris, the officiant carried a vessel of Nile water. It was understood to be the same water as that of Nun, the primal ocean, out of which all creation emerged. The officiant called out, Here is your substance, O gods of Nun, that which makes possible for you to live in his name, the Living One. This water begets you as it begets Ra, every day. It makes it possible for you to be Chepara, Scarab. In the Isis procession described at the end of the Metamorphoses, Apuleius tells us that the most holy object carried in the procession was a vessel full of Nile water. This is the previously mentioned Osiris Hydraeus, a new symbol which appeared in Greco-Roman Egypt, 1st century AD. It represented a kind of matrix out of which the dead would be reborn, and presumably, at the same time, an image of the goddess Isis, who begets the dead once again. The vessel contains water from the Nile, from that primal water, Nun, out of which, according to the Egyptian view, all the gods emerged at the creation of the universe. As Nun, the primal waters from which all creation emerged, this water, which is also fire, is, in addition, a symbol of the collective unconscious. It would then figure as a matrix of images and symbolic insights, whereas fire would be more representative of its emotional quality. Both of these aspects of the unconscious appear in death experiences reported by Moody and Hamp. In describing their experiences, the patients were often overcome by profound emotions of bliss or of suffering. They emphasized time after time that they were unable to find words to describe their feelings adequately. They experienced an inexpressible emotion, fire. On the other hand, these experiences often depict a kind of flowing of light, colors, images, souls, which are not clearly discernible in detail. They have a greater resemblance to the water aspect of the unconscious. A woman goes first through a tunnel. I had to search for my escort somewhere in there, where the dark blue grew toward me from the opening of this tunnel. The hum became brighter and more beautiful. The colors, too, became clearer 
and seemed to merge into a game of a thousand colorful shades, and then to fall apart again like the colors in a bouquet. Every color had a sound, and all of those colors and sounds together produced a wonderful music which filled me and drew me forward. Or, more and more I became enveloped in a magnificent blue sky with pink clouds and soft violet sounds. I floated along in this ideal atmosphere smoothly and painlessly. Or, in an unconscious state, I saw in front of me pictures of myself in which all of the colors of the rainbow ran into one another. This streaming element is apparently met with frequently in near-death experiences. It corresponds to the water aspect of the unconscious. Hindu burials, in which the ashes of the dead are scattered in the Ganges, or in the Balinese custom of taking the ashes out to sea in a boat and scattering them there, express symbolically the idea of a redeeming dissolution, of a return to the primal ocean. At the same time, the symbolism represents the water aspect of the unconscious, something in which the images of creation float, somehow more beautiful and intense than in a dream, but even less comprehensible. Let us return here to the dream of the dying man who was on or in a sky-blue air liquid, which had the shape of an egg. He felt that he was falling into the blue, into the universe and was afraid that he would be dissolved in it. But small blue cloths floating nearby enfolded and held him, after which he observed the Christmas tree. In a similar manner, an aged man sent Jung the following dream. He meets two guides who lead him to a building where he finds many people, among them his father, stepfather, and his mother, who gives him a kiss of welcome. He has to go on a long climb, ending at the edge of a deep precipice. A voice commands him to leap. After several desperate refusals, he obeys and he finds himself swimming deliciously into the blue of eternity. Jung interprets this dream as a preparation for death and points out to the dreamer the Hindu belief that the dying rise upward to the cosmic Atman. There is no loneliness, but allness, or infinitely increasing completeness. The blue air liquid is a strange image, which also appears in the work of a student of Paracelsus, the alchemist Gerhard Dorn. For Dorn, the entire alchemical opus culminates in the production of the so-called chylum, the inner sky. He understood this to refer to the extracted quintessence of the life of the body, the inner truth which, as God's exact image, lies hidden in the innermost recesses of man. If one distills and then rotates this liquid, one sees how it floats upward, translucently bright and of the purest color of the air. In this way, the mysterious inner sky becomes visible. The production of this blue tincture represented for Dorn the highest stage of the conjunctio, union of opposites, a union with the divine world spirit. Jung interprets it in the following way. The whole of the conscious man is surrendered to the self, 
to the new center of personality, which replaces the former ego. The alchemical texts report that this, however, would only be an introductory stage, to be followed by further important transformations. It is an initial liberation from the bonds of the body, from the wishes and desires of the ego, from the narrow world to which consciousness, restricted by our cerebral bonds, confines us during our lifetime. But this seems to reflect only one initial stage of the event of death. Someone who is revived after being technically dead describes it in the following way. The condition in which I found myself was characterized by a feeling of extraordinary peace, but also by something quite different, that is, by a premonition of great events, of an even further transformation. But apart from my sudden return to the operating table, there is nothing further to report. Many other similar reports contain a suggestion of the existence of a further threshold from which apparently there would be no return. Okay, so there was quite a lot in that excerpt that I read. Um, a lot that we could talk about. Um, I just thought it was a great resource to kind of talk about this idea of water and death and, and these different kind of traditions and and uh, thoughts that have emerged about that, that relation. And, you know, it, it spans from China to Greece to alchemy to... Uh, Hindus, Hindu beliefs, and and to Egyptian uh, death liturgy. I mean, it's it's kind of all over the place, including, you know, near death experiences. Um, I guess I will just kind of mention that there are many ideas here that relate to what we were talking about with uh, Barbara's uh, experiences that were we her experiences clearly feature a river um, and this river is running from light uh, from left to right <laughs> um, almost got it backwards there and uh, you know we've talked a couple times about the, the symbolism of kind of the left and the right and the right being kind of the good side the the side that is known and beneficial and and clearly here in this case it is flowing to the right and there are, there are tons of metaphors I mean, as you can tell from what we just read, and, and, you know, just in life in general, that people tend to refer to life as a river and and our lives are, are part of this kind of, uh, I don't know, a cosmic river that is flowing towards the source or something like that. That, that's, uh, that kind of metaphor you see quite a bit. And, uh, but in this case, it's slightly different. The It seems like the goal is not to necessarily go with the river or where the river is flowing, but rather to cross it to this paradise. Um, and I think there are um, plenty of ideas here in, in this book that I just read that, that kind of point to that idea of, of these rivers and, and even the idea of crossing the river to get to this paradisal kind of place, uh, I think the probably the best example is the uh, river Styx for the Greeks 
that one had to cross in order to get to the uh, the underworld and the even you know the bad parts and the good parts I suppose the Elysian fields and the islands of the blessed um, are on the side of on the other side of uh, this river the the Styx and you get taken across by a ferryman and what I was surprised to learn is how many um, other examples there are of that but um, yeah I mean there's quite a bit here from from alchemy to to the uh, you know the <laughs> uh, mummification rituals of the the Egyptians and but again there's this element of water and that the water is the transformative substance in which uh, we are brought into the next life, or so to speak. That I mean, even um, uh, this idea of uh, in a procession of the procession of Isis that they they carried a, a vessel of water that was represented the god Osiris, and there's a, a kind of complicated uh, relation between the god Osiris and a, a newly dead corpse. That I guess the idea is that once someone dies their corpse becomes Osiris to some degree. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but in, in all these cases, the idea of, of water being uh, central to the uh, kind of dying and afterlife process is, is really fascinating. Um, and, you know, we get uh, mentions of uh, scattering ashes in rivers in the Ganges and Hindu burials. Um, and a, as uh, a kind of uh, the custom that we have of, of kind of dissolving ashes in, in either the ocean or, or some body of water as kind of a returning to creation and the Chinese belief that the dead live on in the groundwater um, under the earth. So there, there are all these ideas. Um, but dealing with with what we're talking about with Barbara's experience, um, you know, I, I don't, um, I guess it's kind of that image of paradise being on the other side of this, this river. Um, although, like I said, it's, it's kind of interesting because if uh, there's many metaphors of, of you being in the river and the river flowing to the sea, but in this case, the it's kind of like the place to get to is the island or the the land across from it. And so, um, I don't know, perhaps this river that Barbara comes across is is circular or something that it doesn't necessarily flow to a giant sea or something, but is contained and, and contains this kind of paradisal uh, realm. There's... Uh, a lot of associations with, you know, the ideas of the Garden of Eden and and paradise, uh, well, uh, particularly the Garden of, e- of Eden as being a place where four rivers come together. And so there's lots of these associations to kind of plumb. Um, but uh, what I was surprised when I was reading about the the sticks, the river sticks, because that's the, I think, the most direct... Um, kind of example that we can find of of uh Barbara's kind of image that that appears in her, in her um experience uh I was surprised that there are 
other rivers that kind of uh, function the same as the Styx, but in vastly different cultures. Uh, for example, in uh, the Japanese Buddhist tradition, there is a river known as the Sanzu River. Um, and it says that it, it's believed that the dead must cross the river on the way to the afterlife, uh, a belief reflected in Japanese funerals when six coins are placed in the casket with the dead. And so um, that, there's not a whole lot of information on it, but it's just kind of kind of uh, fascinating that this river image is, is quite a uh, ubiquitous and... and uh, definitely a human type of image that emerges in, in connection with the afterlife. That, you know, it's not like the uh, Japanese were stealing from the Greeks or vice versa. So, um, and then there's also uh, another example I found um, uh, was this term uh, in Sumerian dialect. It's called Huber. Huber? Huber. Um, and it's it refers to the river of the netherworld. Now this one is is probably more, um, you know, more likely to have uh, had an influence on perhaps the Greeks, um, depending on how far it goes back. But um, it, it really interesting uh, that. Well, I'm just going to read some of it. They. Uh, uh, mention here to begin with the goddess Tiamat was this giant kind of water dragon that represented the the primordial waters. A connection to Tiamat has been suggested with parallels to her description as Umu Huber. Huber is also referred to in the Enuma Elish as Mother Sea Huber, who fashions all things. The river Euphrates has been identified with Huber as the source of fertility in Sumer. This Babylonian river of creation has been linked to Hebrew river, river paradise. Gunkel and Zimmern suggest resemblance and expressions in a possible connection between the Sumerian river and that found in later literary tradition in the book of Ezekiel, likely influencing imagery of the river of water of life in the apocalypse. They also noted a connection between the water of life and the legend of Adapa and a myth translated in A.H. Sace called An Address to the River of Creation. Delich has suggested the similar Sumerian word haber probably meant a mighty water source, source of fertility, or the like. This has suggested the meaning of huber to be the river of fertility in the underworld. Okay, so I think we get the get the idea with with the Sumerian example of this, but and that uh, as that passage kind of indicates, could have possibly influenced the um, Hebrew ideas that uh, emerged in the Bible of of a river of paradise, so to speak, um, and perhaps even the Greeks, I suppose. Um, and another example I will probably not be able to pronounce, but is a river coming from Norse mythology, and it's uh, Gujol. It's the river that separates the living from the dead in Norse mythology. Um, yeah, and so there's not a whole lot <laughs> about it. It is um, Gujol is the, also the name of the boulder to which the monstrous wolf Fenrir is bound. We we um, 
ran into the wolf Fenrir when uh, we were reading about the image of the dog. Um, all this stuff is interconnected, which is crazy. But um, so it, uh, it's just again going back to the uh, the reason for exploring these these images is to ground it in in a you know the human experience, our our cultural heritage of all these various. Um, societies and cultures from around the world that, that, that we have um, drawn on similar images over time to express something divine, to express um, something within us that um, you know we concretize with um, the things around us, the landscape and and bodies of water like rivers or. or categories like male and female or animals you know we we draw on all these different uh things that populate our our you know temporary human existence to describe um these uh, amazing well and not even to describe because it's it's automatic it it's just it it's uh it, it happens without our <laughs> without our uh, conscious willing it it's um these experience just for some reason i that i don't understand they they draw on on these various images and symbols and and present them in, in this kind of narrative that the experiencer has has just kind of dropped right into the middle of or or is pulled from their couch through through a wormhole and and lands in it and so um Again, her uh, Barbara's experience and and that of her grandmother is is very well founded mythologically, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and so, uh, I think we will now move on to the last shared death experience that we have today, and this one is coming from a woman named Kathy. Um, Kathy was. Uh, just by her her mother's bedside as her mother was dying and and uh, and this kind of very interesting experience occurred as as her mother was dying um, this occurred in in 2004 and it it was just a it, it has a dark aspect and a light aspect and so that is uh, you know very interesting just uh, that it would be that nuance that that complicated, you know, um, things are not always uh, bright and beautiful as much as we'd like them to be. Um, so uh, we will discuss this last uh, share death experience and then kind of talk about what emerges from from that and what we can <laughs> learn about um, SDEs as. Um, kind of in in summary, in, in total. So this is Kathy's shared death experience. I was holding vigil over my mother's deathbed. She had checked into the hospital, and they found a large non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer tumor just below her ribcage. The good news was that it was curable, The bad news was that the CHOPS therapy she needed couldn't be fully used because she had heart problems. She was in a very fragile condition at age 79, 
so we were all amazed that she even consented to receive therapy. Unfortunately, the morphine that they began to give her for the pain quickly swept her under. She couldn't wake up from it and her organs began to fail. I stayed with her in the room every night for three nights, holding her hand when she couldn't speak or move anymore. I knew she could still hear and feel me though. Finally, I couldn't bear that my mother was suffering like this because she had truly lived a saintly life. I know many Catholic Irish people will say that about their mothers, but this time it couldn't be truer. I never have, nor will I, probably ever meet a person as completely unselfish as she was. Everyone who knew her knew she was a saint. So I was really struggling with why my mother had to suffer. I had reached the point where I was feeling really desperate, begging my father, who had passed away before her, to come and take her out of her body. I was so worried that she would be in pain and not be able to tell us. I finally told my mother that I was going to let go of her hand because I wanted her to begin to let go of her earthly body. This was a very hard thing to do. I didn't want to let go of her hand. I didn't want her to leave me, but I knew that she needed to go home to God. I felt that it was the right thing to do. When I let go of her hand, I felt like her spirit was very sad. This was just the worst moment of my life. I was crying on the little cot next to her hospital bed and just asking repeatedly to my father, where are you? Why don't you come for her? Why is God letting her suffer? I was beside myself with grief. Then all of a sudden, I felt that someone was in the room with us. I turned around and saw something hanging in the corner of the ceiling. It was a huge being, which had wings, but was more like a bird's wings than angel's wings. They were down and pinned to its sides. It was just sitting on nothing in the corner. I was terrified. I was completely frozen. The way you freeze when you see something so scary, you just try not to move or to be noticed. I had no idea what it was, but it didn't feel good. Then, suddenly, my mind was flooded with rapid-fire good memories of my mom and our life together. I can't even remember all the memories, but the quality of the memories is what I will never forget. It was like lightning speed, but somehow my mind could comprehend it. I went from the darkest moment in my life to being flooded with every good feeling, joy, and peace all at once. At the time, I didn't connect what happened to me with the presence in the ceiling corner. That thing was bad, and this was good. It wasn't until later that I wondered if that could have been an angel or even someone I didn't recognize. I don't think I will ever know who that was until I die myself. I've wondered if it was a guardian angel, hers or mine, my dad, or even my mom's unrecognizable spirit. I will never know. I do know that it had the quality of a life review, but it was all the good memories. It filled my heart with peace. I've never felt that need to have anyone believe my story. It happened, and I know it. I already believed in God, 
So this doesn't change my life that much, except that I do feel like the veil of death creates a thinness in the barrier between this world and the next. I was there at this moment in time when a light shined through from the other side. It was still hard to lose my mother, but because I held her hand for so long, I have a lasting gift from those days. Whenever I am sad, I put my hand on my face. My mother's hand is comforting me. That was her gift to me for staying by her side. She told me to do this. Okay, so that was Kathy's shared death experience. This one is is quite different from the others because it's it's definitely a, I guess less I don't know, she she isn't transported to a different place and she isn't dreaming. She's uh kind of holding a vigil by her mother's deathbed and and this is probably something that if one of us were to experience a shared death experience, it would probably look perhaps more along the line uh, lines of something that Kathy experienced, being in a hospital room, being next to um, a loved one that is passing away. And it's quite heart-wrenching to, to hear her, her pain at, at uh, you know, having to sit there and, and not be able to do anything while her mother is suffering. And um, so I guess it, it's quite a different, I don't know, um, aspect of the shared death experience. Um, and I thought this one would, would be a good, uh, another example of, of what this experience, the shape that this experience can take. Um, so the, it's, it's kind of a interesting thing that happens. She is, she is holding her mother's hand as her mother is, is passing away and she is feeling desperation. She's feeling pain. She is feeling, um, just utter grief and is, a kind of asking her her deceased father and and God uh, where they are can't they come help like why does her mother have to suffer like this she was such a uh, a wonderful saintly woman and and why does she have to go through this and and so she's asking as she lets go of her mother's hand and and she's crying and asking, where are you? Why don't you come for her? Why is God letting her suffer? And, um, and then there's a weird, dark kind of presence in the corner of the room. Uh, this is not necessarily like a, a beautiful, <laughs> bright angel or loved one or anything like that. She, she describes it as, as very frightening. And it's kind of this has bird-like wings that are down. Um, and, and she says that she, she didn't really see it with her eyes, but she saw it in her mind or her mind's eye, so to speak, which is just, um, I, I don't know, some kind of indication that when perhaps when these things happen, we don't necessarily see them in the same way that we could see, you know, um, most things. But she she mentions how terrified she is, and, and she's she freezes like, like a, I don't know, a, like a predator or like a prey who sees 
sees a predator or something, and she gets a, a very bad feeling about it. But then right after that, she gets kind of this uh, rapid life review that flashes before her eyes of her of her mother and, and her, she and her mother's life together. Um, and she, she says she can't even, it was kind of so fast, it was like lightning speed, and she can't even uh, remember all of them. But uh, the feeling that was evoked from, from all of these was, was incredibly pleasant and good. You know, all of our lives are, are complicated, and we're going to have, you know, good moments and bad mem- moments with people we love. But it seems as though um, this life review of sorts was was a kind of uh, a, a, only a good one. It, it was. It seems it seems like it was f- for Kathy, but perhaps it was for her mother too. I I don't entirely know how her mother factors into to what Kathy was experiencing. Um, and then she goes on to say that at the time she didn't really connect these two things. They're kind of, well, opposites. Um, very interesting that we have a, you know, a conjunction of, of good and evil, so to speak, um, under one experience. Um, she's said she's wondered, wondered if it's an angel or if it was her dad or even her mom's spirit, and she does not does not know, but she felt like this life review that she had with her mom was was a uh, a treasure that that she could carry with her for for the rest of her life. And she also mentions that um, she does now feel like the death kind of creates a thinness. She she uses that language exactly, which is interesting. A, a thinness in the barrier between this world and the next. She says, I was there at this moment in time when a light shined through from the other side. So, and and she goes on to say that this experience she had was a gift from her mother for for staying by her side. So, it's very interesting. And and so, uh, you know, at first I wasn't going to include this one. I thought this would be too long, uh, you know, and I didn't really see the connection um, that how it would connect with the other um, experiences that we've we've talked about. Now, clearly, they feature quite <laughs> quite prominently feature water um, and images that emerge, like egg, the egg, and and things like that. But um, when I was reading about this um, Sumerian river of paradise or this underworld netherworld river, the Huber. Um, I came across this little, little bit in, in the mythology section that really intrigued me. Uh, it says, In another story, a four-handed bird demon carries souls across to the city of the dead. Several Akkadian demons are also restrained by the river Huber. Um, so, I mean, I was... In in reading about these other experiences in Barbara's with this river uh, being separated by a crossing, um, a crossing over, a uh, a mythical river of paradise, the water of life, all these different things, um, I found a relation here with with this being that Kathy experiences this I this kind of dark 
bird-like being that terrifies her. Um, she herself is Christian, and so um, she mentions that she she kind of had a a hard time coming uh, coming to a, a way of thinking about what this angel demon thing was. Um, she goes on to say that. Uh, let me find it. Uh, that you know she she starts thinking about it, you know in the Bible when when angels appear, how often it is described as as being uh, terrifying, like the the people who who come across or who the angels appear to are just like uh, you know absolutely <laughs> horrified by by what they see, you know, which. Assuming we're talking about experiences of, of real individuals, and I would include, you know, Kathy's as well as someone who is, um, uh, whose account was taken down in biblical times. I mean, it's a similar phenomenon. Um, if you were, you know, in a hospital room and some dark kind of uh, evil-seeming bird demon angel thing appeared— or even if it was a, you know, a person, an angel that just appeared to you like in your room or in a hospital room or something, that would be pretty terrifying to begin with. Um, and she specifically quotes uh, the um, book of Luke in the Bible, um, 2.9. This is the English Standard Version. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. It's referring to um, the shepherds, I believe, that were um, watching their flocks um, the night of Christ's birth. Um, but I, I believe there are other examples as well in the Bible of, of you know, angels appearing and, and them being associated with great terror. But it just goes to, to show, I mean, express a, a kind of ambiguity of, of the divine. That's something that we, um, we've we talked about uh, a couple times so far, and, and particularly we, we talked a lot about it um, a few episodes ago. It was, it was uh, John's fear-death experience, Sandy's near-death experience, and a, a letter from Carl Jung to a Catholic priest. And in that episode, we talked a lot about the um, ambiguity of of uh, the religious experience I, I suppose of not only uh, God but but also how these how human beings interact with the divine it's not always light and beautiful and wonderful and um, you know uh, it can it can have this dark aspect this kind of threatening aspect too Um. And so, you know, I don't really know what to make of it besides a this bringing together of the opposites, a totality of you have good on, on the one hand and a negative on the other, evil. But one thing I do think is, is interesting in this respect, um, well, there's, there's a couple things like, you know, we could talk about the idea of birds... Um, being associated with with death and as symbols of death and as symbols of angels, um, 
There's lots of routes you could take with that. There are even um, burials, I believe, in in the Zoroastrian tradition and and maybe even um, uh, Tibetan uh, burials that involve the body being eaten by birds. It's placed on a um, kind of, I believe they call them Towers of Silence, which is a pretty cool name, but... Um, the body is is left on this tower of silence, this kind of raised platform, and is taken away by birds. And um, and so there's all sorts of these associations that we could get into. I mean, I just uh, what really kind of hooked me was the fact that <laughs> there's you know mention of in this Sumerian mythological tradition that uh, a bird demon transports the soul across this river, which you know, ties in exactly with what we were talking about before. But um, referring to the kind of ambiguity of of the deity, of of the religious experience, how it can be, you know, positive and negative, um, uh, something interesting that I came across that uh, I guess might, <laughs> might lend to this discussion, I don't know, but um, the word demon actually... Um, originally does not have any negative connotations. Uh, it is derived from the Greek word daimon. It's D-A-I-M-O-N. And um, what that originally meant was a, a spirit or a divine power. Um, and so it, it's not necessarily, you know, <laughs> in, in its original etymology doesn't necessarily have to be something dark or evil or, or um, kind of, you know, negative in force, although this one was, that the original meaning of the word demon comes from a just a kind of more general, um, ambiguous kind of messenger of God or, or manifestation of God, so to speak. So I thought that was that was really interesting. And in this case, you know, although it was terrifying, it didn't... Um, it didn't seem to harm uh, Kathy or her mother in any particular way. It was just kind of there. So it's very interesting. Um, I, I think we've probably gone long enough that we shouldn't go down the rabbit hole of, of bird and demon kind of mythology and, and images and stuff. But just to know that that is is a kind of fruitful area of of uh, religious ideas. You know, you have ideas of, like, uh, the phoenix, which bursts into to flames and then emerges from its ashes. That's a bird associated with um, death and rebirth and, and things. So it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a uh, numinous kind of image, and, and the whole angel thing is... is as well, and so um, I guess just to to try to sum this up, I suppose um, we, we can kind of discuss all three and and how they are all well. They're all different, um, and and one of the biggest differences that that I noticed was there's kind of um, different levels of engagement almost. Um, with Francis in the first one, you know, she says she 
wasn't particularly close with her grandparents or anything, you know, and and she doesn't mention that she was worried about her grandmother passing away or her grandmother wasn't doing well or anything. She just goes to sleep one night and it's this completely involuntary experience that happens to her. She's just sucked into it through a dream. And then we go to Barbara, who has a near-death experience, which is um, quite interesting. And, and she is recovering from her eyes being uh, messed up, being burned, and uh, gets to starts getting these flashes of images. And, and then so she kind of engages with these images in a uh, somewhat voluntary way. She didn't kind of initiate this process, but, but um, you know, it leads to her getting to see her grandmother's crossing this river of, of paradise, so to speak. And then finally, we have Kathy, who is at uh, her mother's bedside as she's dying and is a full voluntary kind of asking for something to happen, asking God, asking her deceased father, why won't you do something? And so we go from completely involuntary in the first one to a somewhat voluntary engagement with the images in, in Barbara's case and into a full asking for an experience, asking for some intervention from the divine uh, in Kathy's case. And so there's, there's three different levels of kind of conscious ego interaction with this experience, and, and clearly it can happen in all three cases. Um, and so I suppose what a takeaway might be is that that we, as we go about our lives, should, should look for the things that come to us involuntarily or if we need help to ask for it. I don't know what that would mean, but um, if I could extract any kind of wisdom from these various experiences is that we, um, if we pay attention to the things that are, are emerge within us that we don't necessarily have any have any control over that you know something could happen from that and it could you know help you as a person to, or, or help you grow or have some experience that defines you or transforms you of some in some way or in Kathy's case if if there's a moment of great suffering it, it her experience would suggest that truly asking for for some kind of divine appearance or manifestation could perhaps that would happen and now obviously with uh, there's the caveat that it the appearance may not look or be the way you want it to be um but that's the idea that that is suggested by that, and you know, I can I can only think of because near death experiences and shared death experiences are all different. You know, I could never tell you what what you're going to experience when you die. I don't know what I'm going to experience when I die. It seems like it's built up out of our own uh, 
I don't know, the old, our own um, physical kind of ideas and and images and, and stories that we have within us that this kind of experience just draws on, on all of the things that we have collected throughout our lives and kind of weaves some, some kind of, I don't know, representation of, of what our souls go through. And there's a quite amazing overlap of some of these different constitutive ele- elements you know, we can talk about the big ones of, you know, there being tunnels or, uh, you know, a tunnel and a bright light or, or kind of instantaneous communication or, um, you know, a life review or something like that. But there's also just, um, you know, just this kind of idea like uh, in the passage in uh, the On Dreams and, and Death book uh, where she was talking about... Um, uh, Zosimos um, calling water the round element um, and how this relates to Osiris as being a round kind of all-encompassing water element and then going on to uh, the Egyptian kind of quote that talks about this round mighty sea encompassing the whole of, of these islands um, and that kind of relates to this image of that we read in the kind of summation of shared death experiences of seeing when people see uh, in a shared death experience the soul emerge out of the body that it's kind of this round orb of of kind of a gray mist and so there are all these little connections that we can see and explore and i think this whole episode has has been about that this uh, all these little connections of of images and ideas that that make up our our spiritual language. And and that's why I wanted to bring up that quote from Hafer. It really is a kind of of language. It it doesn't seem like it can be communicated in any other way, that it it has to draw on these kind of, uh, you know, symbols and and ideas and and images that that contain these, these kind of opposites and all these inexpressible things that that near-death experiencers um, so often lament that we don't have the right words for. So I think we will end there, this being the longest episode I've ever done. And if you made it to the end, congrats. (laughs) I wish I had a prize for you, but um, just my admiration. So um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you want to reach out to me, you can... Do so by sending me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. You can check out our Facebook page. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please uh, tell a friend about it. You know, if there's someone who's interested in death and stuff, uh, let them know. And, and please leave a five-star review on, on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use because that really helps us out. And if, if you are... Um, uh, interested in supporting the podcast, uh, you can do so on my Patreon Patreon page, which is uh, Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Um, I'm going to be reading a chapter from uh, the um, <laughs> prominently featured book in this episode on dreams and death. I'm going to read a full chapter for um, Patreon subscribers only, so if that's something that you're interested in, in hearing, um, 
please go check out my Patreon page. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening um, and and getting getting through the this this marathon of a of an episode. So now we will uh, close with a quote on death. Okay, so to close out this very long episode, I am going to read a quote from the Bible, and I wanted to read this. Um, you know, it was another kind of coincidence that it it had to do with something that uh, we encountered uh, at the beginning of the longer passage on water and death that we read from uh, the book we've been consulting this this entire episode. Um, and Dr. Von Franz mentions that in Egyptian and alchemy, um, there was this idea that at the deepest level that there was this kind of equivalence between water and fire and and that they were in very important um, in the idea of death and rebirth. And what I wanted to mention, I, I kind of forgot to mention it as we <laughs> went along, but uh, in, in that passage she talks about uh, kind of how how we can imagine the aspects of water and fire um, and how they relate to the near-death experience. She quotes several uh, snippets of near-death experiences from from uh, research by uh, Raymond Moody and, and talks about how water and fire kind of show themselves in, in the aspects of, of the experience. And so she, she talks about how water kind of represents the the flowing together that uh, the fluidity, I guess, of of people's experiences um, when they have an NDE. How how scenes kind of just shift seamlessly into one another and merge. It's all kind of fluid in in how people get from place to place and from scene to scene in their uh, experience. It's all kind of watery and fluid. And then she attributes the fire aspect, um, the fire archetype, if, if you will, to um, in near-death experiences as being the kind of intensity of emotion that people feel, um, the intensity of, of the joy or peace or, or even, you know, um, you know, sadness or, or disappointment. Like, people tend to have very strong emotions in their near-death experiences. And, and Dr. Von Franz relates that fire aspect to the strength of the affect, the uh, emotion. Um, and usually she talks about when she's interpreting dreams, fire usually relates to some kind of energy or libido that manifests in emotions. Uh, you know, if you ever have a very um, gripping dream, it usually you know, you can wake up crying or something that very has a very strong emotional reaction, and that um, Dr. Von Franz relates to the fire side of the equation. But um, this this quote that I wanted to close with uh, clearly has both of those, um, uh, and I again thought that was very very interesting. From you know the idea of again bringing together the opposites, which is a very common common thing we talk about and, and common in spiritual and, and mystical experiences. So this is coming from Isaiah 43.2, and I'm reading it from the New American Standard Bible. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, 
they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you.